Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, the healthcare facilities management show dedicated to discussing the trends, the issues, the challenges, the opportunities, but most importantly, the people who keep America's hospitals safe, secure, and functioning. The High Reliability Podcast is brought to you by Goslin Martin Associates, a leading recruiter and educator in the discipline of healthcare facilities management. We work with hospitals and systems across the United States, and my name is Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. Today, I am joined by Scott Aronson, Senior Vice President, Security Risk and Emergency Management at Jensen Hughes. Scott leads the Security Risk and Emergency Management Division for Jensen Hughes, delivering solutions in security risk management, emergency preparedness, fire and life safety, security design, investigations, and law enforcement consulting. Scott's clients include healthcare systems and fortune-ranked global enterprises to nonprofits, law firms, state and local governments, as well as private clients and their family offices. Previously, Scott was principal, Russell Phillips & Associates, for more than 17 years before merging his company into Jensen Hughes, and he has more than 26 years of healthcare-specific experience working with hospitals and systems across the world. Scott, welcome and thank you. Well, Peter, thank you for having me today. I know uh, it's a crazy time. We're in a unique time dealing with the coronavirus as we tape this. It is Friday, April 10th. So we've got the coronavirus pandemic across the United States, across the world. So let's get right to it, Scott. What do you see as some of the key issues taking place with hospital surge and the use of alternate care sites? Sure. It, it definitely is a unique time. So, you know, we, we kind of look backwards because that's one of our great challenges is history often drives what happens today and in the future. And, you know, these are not surprises of where we are. Um, you, you look back and realize, you know, I've, I've worked in healthcare since 94, and we've seen different disasters happen from the situation of 9-11 taking place to going through the anthrax to the SARS situation in 2003, even though it wasn't a heavy impact on the United States. And then H1N1 in 2009 and even hurricanes and other disasters all happening throughout. I think what we've seen is that our country has has always come together. We deal with these challenges and really focus on how to improve and, you know, I'm, I'm in and around about 3,000 um, healthcare facilities around the country. And so what we see as some of these primaries right now is how are we going to address this catastrophic surge? So that is a, a major challenge to our facilities management, our safety and emergency preparedness professionals. And then where are we going to surge? So is it that we're going to do this within the hospital proper? So that we're going to look at capabilities and how we're going to address that within, you know, clinical areas, procedural areas, or non-traditional space. Is this something that's going to set up um, where we're going to do it in our medical office buildings? And or are we looking at the tents? You see tents popping up all over the place. And then the alternate care sites in the field, which could be convention centers to um, hotels and dormitories, 
and or large places like you saw in Rhode Island, they put up a Lowe's, you know, an empty Lowe's that they're looking at using that entire space. So our challenge is really about how we handle that piece and then ultimately where we handle that piece. And along with that comes all the resources and assets and capabilities necessary to fully run an alternate care site. So when you come in, Scott, say Rhode Island or wherever you happen to be working at the time and perhaps, you know, pick a place where you are working. But when you come in, is your role, what is the hospital, I don't even, or the system looking at you to do, are they looking for your guidance? I, I, I guess what I'm asking is, this is such a unique time. Is there a clear roadmap when you come in or are you working with clients as you go along, learning as you're going, like most of us are? Sure. So, you know, that that's a, a unique question because there's there are a couple parts to that. Um, the first piece is we've been doing surge capacity assessments at hospitals and long-term care since 2007. So we actually wrote a guide in 2008 on how to surge long-term care facilities. So that was kind of the, the nursing home side as we were looking at catastrophic surge for them. But that was more around receiving an influx of patients or residents from another healthcare facility that had been heavily impacted. And then we started designing these surge capacity plans for hospitals where we would go in and identify what we would call the four S's and now the five S's. The four S's are the space, the staff, stuff, so all of our equipment and resources, we need to do it. And then the systems, and that was kind of our base of saying, well, how are we going to operationalize this as our systems? Now we really have to put that extra level on top of there of the safety, because while we always would do it, that needs to be front and center in these discussions. So we've had that base of doing this where we would go in and we'd say, you know, it kind of funny discussions when you did it in the past, I, I would go in and talk to the operating rooms and say, okay. We really want to look at how we could surge this. And you'd have the chief of surgery come up and say, you got to leave my ORs alone. No way are you touching my operating rooms. And then we would get into that discussion where we would say, well, let's look at if your elective surgeries were canceled. What could we do then? And we start this process with them of helping to engage them in that thought process of saying, hey, you're assuming you're busy like you are today. You're assuming you're slammed. You've got a caseload. The board is loaded up. But in reality, let's take that away and put you into an alternate scenario. And so once you got the people to that place, they really could think it through and then come up with the strategies for you and with you. Because I'm not a clinician. Our team, they're not clinicians. We're specialists at looking at the disaster scenario and how we could help formulate that into a solution for the client. And so that same type of thing is happening today. So we had the foundation of these surge plans and staffing strategies for emergencies. But now we have to almost, I don't want to say punt, but we have to shift gears a little bit because we don't have that planning ramp up time now. So we have to now go in there and, and identify with our healthcare facilities as they're doing the same process internally, identify with them, how could we most rapidly convert space, utilize that space staff it, get the stuff necessary for it, and keep the patients and the staff safe throughout. Our number one thing when we get in there is to identify, do not compromise safety. 
That is huge. I'll reiterate that so many times with our clients. It scares me when I see CMS come out with a waiver that says, hey, if you're going to these alternate care sites, you can now eliminate the emergency preparedness um, rule. There's a waiver that says emergency preparedness requirements do not apply in that same way. I understand it, and I totally agree that we cannot hold people to the same standards. But what I don't agree with, I think we need to put that caveat there that says all aspects of mitigating risks, threats, and vulnerabilities to patients and staff need to be taken into account. So I'll give you an example of of something that we see when we go in. We may be asked to go in and look at an area, and let's take an existing hospital space. That'll be the first one. So you go to a patient unit, and it's being converted to a negative pressure patient unit. And they've put in all the individualized areas. They've got the through the, you know, the, the, they push the uh, individual units for negative pressure through the windows. So we're having the right air exchanges. And a single room altering probably doesn't change too much. But when you take an entire unit and you do that, now picture a unit that was neutral pressure going to all negative pressure. And what happens in a fire now at this time? So in the past, you would be like, oh, close the door to the fire room of origin, close the door to all the other rooms, and we're fine. Well, if we get into a situation where all negative pressure is pulling that air from the the corridor that could be a smoke-filled corridor, now we have a threat to the patients. Now, it is true you're dealing with low volumes. I mean, it's not dealing with a high pull from the corridor for, for negative pressure, but when you have every room going at the same time, how do we handle that? So what we have to look at in that situation is to say, I get that we are doing something different. That's fine. Let's look at how we should alter our fire response procedures for something like this. So if I was in a, in a clinical unit in the past and I had a PTAC in the room, so we had it sucking air from the outside for our rooms. If I had that in my room, I would have said in the past, okay, in a fire procedure, Go in, shut off the the PTAC unit. You know, first, obviously, say protect the patients, address the room of fire origin, address the rooms adjacent to it, and all that. But in the other rooms, we need to shut those PTACs off because if we have a window that blows out on the floor below us, it'll be sucking um, smoke into a, a patient room, and so we might not even know that that is going on because we've closed all the doors. So in this situation, we do something in reverse. We have to actually go in and shut off those negative pressure um, units that are there. Not something that people are thinking about right now because that's not the first thing they're going through. They're going through the engineering process of how to convert a unit. Same thing happens where they're putting the IV pumps in the corridors. So we just have to, it doesn't make that huge a difference. We know that we're kind of violating the the CMS, Joint Commission, other rules that say, you know, what can be left in the corridor as a, a stable item that's there, non-movable item. Um, and all we need to do is make sure in their just-in-time training that they're saying, hey, in a fire, get those pumps into the room. So get them out of the corridor. So there's just little things that we're looking at that alter when we get in there. And it's, it's a challenge to take people that are working so hard to manage the threat of the COVID-19 and the exposure to their staff from a clinical level to also really integrate some of the core practices we know for dealing with fires, emergencies, and other threats. It's interesting. It's almost, you know, I remember when I was listening to the CMS administrator, what is it, a couple of weeks ago now, when 
they initially started to, um, to, um, you know, make modifications to their rules, making them less stringent, as you were just discussing. It was, I was thinking to myself, that's a really good thing. But then you're talking about the downstream impacts and almost you're, you almost need to bring that next level thinking yet. Everybody's trying to solve for the COVID-19. Think of everything else. You're downstream, right? You're directing your clients. Okay. This is great, but what does it mean in actuality? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I applaud CMS. I mean, I really do applaud what they're doing. They, HHS, all of them are working incredibly well with the healthcare partners. Yep. So everybody's trying to make the right accommodations. But when we think of a command center and you think of that command center structure at a hospital, there's a reason why we break it down into operations, logistics, finance, planning. We've got safety, security role that's in there. So we have all those different functions and we need to make sure that in the healthcare facilities, that piece is still critical to what's happening. They have to protect the patients and staff from a clinical standpoint, from an infectious disease standpoint, but we also have to be making sure that all of those other components are there. So you really break that down. I mean, think about what we're talking to people about doing. We're talking to people about taking clinical units and altering their use. We're talking about procedural space, surgical, endoscopy, um, interventional radiology, areas that have holdings, um, PACUs that can be converted to inpatient units. We're looking at non-traditional space, such as our clinics, our even in some cases, cafeterias, rehab gyms, conference rooms, at altering those spaces as well. Then, then we go outside the building and we take into account all of the things that may be owned by our health system, you know, the MOBs, the ambulatory surgery centers, endoscopy centers, everything else. Then we go to the tents that are outside of our hospitals that are being set up. Um, I was at Connecticut and there's the four 25-bed uh, mobile hospital, field hospital is deployed. You'll see it at Trinity Health New England. They've got it right outside St. Francis there. It's one of the 25-bed units. You know, you'll see this in a lot of areas. You see New York City, Central Park, and all the tents that are up. And then you go to the big boys, You know those convention centers and all of that. Every one of these has a different level we need to take when we're thinking about how to deal with the rapid infusion of patients, the protection of the patients from a clinical level, and then what we need to do for safety, security, emergency response. We had a situation happen that was in the Midwest where there was a person that wanted to blow up a hospital, and he was actually killed by law enforcement, but wanted to blow up a hospital because of COVID-19 patients. He's blaming the healthcare infrastructure for this. If we think that's not going to happen in all of these alternate care sites that they don't need to think about the physical technical security necessary to protect the patients and staff that they're putting in there, then we have another thing coming. That is a big challenge in society. People are scared. There are a lot of unique people already out there that we already know about. Those unique people tend to become you know, bad actors. They tend to think of other things. So we're now thinking of our structure, our patients, all the things going on. And we also have to add an element of additional security perspective to it to be able to identify how are we going to do this? We now have meds, we've got pharmaceutical, uh, we've got um, a PPE, which we know is in high demand. We've got ventilators out there. The black market would love to have this. That's where all the dollars are coming through. So we have to protect those assets. 
then we look at our staff that are coming into work that need to be protected because we now have a patient population that's rapidly been coming into our hospitals or alternate care sites that are not being monitored for what else, where are they coming from? What is this person that's now in our structure? And then we move to that next level of identifying those other bad actors out there, ones that may want to do harm to the facility and how do we establish appropriate perimeters? And, And this is where engagement with our um, community partners, emergency responders is so critical. Law enforcement needs to be part of the solution. They're also taxed though. They're also having challenges, but we have to engage them to be part of the solution. I know that we've been doing a tremendous number of security risk assessments and security master plans because people have not been able to think to that level yet. And they really Mm -hmm. need to have picking into all the access points, all the alterations going on, um, we're seeing, you know, closed hospitals, shuttered hospitals reopen. And, you know, there are so many changes happening in this industry. Those pieces need to be in place for that emergency planning, security risk planning, and the fire, our traditional fire threats. Excellent. Great. <laughs> great answer and great practical example. Scott, you've talked a number, uh, quite a bit about the areas of the country that are right now undergoing major surge. You talked about D.C. before our conversation. You mentioned Connecticut, Rhode Island, the Midwest. How about for somebody who's in a part of the country where right now they're not experiencing huge surge, maybe you know those sections of the Midwest that we know about outside of Chicago and the major cities? Is there anything, one or two things that you would recommend a director or a hospital should be doing now in anticipation of the surge? Or what, what should they be doing if they're sitting there saying, it's coming? What should I do? When's it coming? Yeah, so uh, good question on there, because I think that in each different space, um, they, they have to have that evaluation done. So my number one thing that I would have them doing is not go off of their past surge plan. Um, don't just look at that and say, that's what we agreed to truly go assess their entire hospital and reviewing the space and reviewing the concept of how they can use space. That would be number one, because so much of it, people, you know, you've got some really bright people in healthcare institutions. They know what their hospitals built like and the structure of it, but they really need to go out and walk it and look at those areas to determine, is it a viable use of that space? And how could we do that? Because you have to take into account your patients. You have to take into account your staff sleeping aspects of what needs to happen. So what are we going to do to, to utilize the space well? And then the other part is the resources and assets to do it. So again, if you're going to be converting an area to negative pressure, having the plan already in place of how you're going to do that is so critical. You know, ASHI's putting out really good information about this. Um, NFPA has different information. So there's, there's good data to help you determine how to accomplish that. But to get those resources and assets is extremely challenging. And if you wait to the time when the emergency is upon you, you're in trouble. And it's this is one of those dicey ones because you don't want people to go out and spend massive amounts of money to prepare them for something that, that still may not hit their area. But at the same time, we know it's hitting in most spaces and we know it's going to escalate. So to really do a practical investment of handling the capability to surge and having the right resources and assets is going to be vital. Um, Also, understanding your staff. So when we talk about the facilities management, the environmental services, all the team members, the security team, 
is making sure that your staff have their own plan. So are they okay? Have they done the right things? Because so many times we're ready to go, we push the button, we activate, and now all of a sudden our own staff can't come in. We've seen that through hurricane planning. We know that's a big issue that's always gone on in major hurricanes and the health systems that have had advanced strategies on how to accomplish that have come out of it in fantastic shape. I don't want to say that they haven't been damaged by it, but if they worked with their staff to better prepare, they were in much better shape than those that didn't have a true management strategy for how to work together with their team. And the last thing we need to do is is not see our entire maintenance staff show up at the building because I, I just either they're scared, they may be scared to come in in some situations, and you just need to provide the right education. Work hard to make sure you have the right PPE. They don't need a lot, but they do need the basics and making sure that that's understood by them. Because if they haven't been involved directly in the education and just the director has been involved or the manager, they're missing out on what this means to them. And then they're just reading the, the news media. And we know that the media can be all over the place. Depends what you listen to. You know, you, you can, it can be really scary as to what happens to the media. That's a great point. Your, your last one, just talking about educating the staff and making sure they know and, and that that source of information is you and not the media that's and or really anybody else. That's a that's an outstanding point. Uh, it, along those lines, Scott, as as you've you know, you wrote your 4S plan in 2007. We talked about surge and, you, you know, your first piece of advice is don't go off your past surge firm, your past surge plan. As you've worked with hospitals as you start to work with them on the coronavirus, is there a, is there a thing that you've noticed that hospitals have done really well to prepare them for? Kind of like an aha moment. Does that does that question make sense? You know, as you've started working with them, like ah, you you might not have connected it now, but now in retrospect, when you're dealing with corona, you said oh, we've done this well. This is a good thing. Yeah, I, I would say the aha moment are the ones that have exercised and done it under real conditions, that they actually did it. They went through and they ran these disaster exercises and ran them to a break point at their hospital. When leadership has been that committed, those plans will work because at any time you can take an existing plan that's strong and make alterations to it. It's much easier to modify off an existing plan than it is to create it on the spot because you haven't tested it. You don't know where your failure points are on it. And so that's always the point that we come back to is when we walk in there and they actually take out that plan, it's amazing to see what they can do with it. Um, I did it one time, I went to a healthcare system that we had done a surge plan for dealing with, again, another hospital evacuating into them or internal relocation of patients. They took that surge plan and the trauma team sat down and applied it to a mass casualty incident they had had many years before that completely overwhelmed them. And they stopped and said, you know what, if I just had these, these 15 to 20 surge areas in front of me sitting here, I would have altered my entire thinking that night at 9.30 p.m. and I would have used my space differently. And so to me, that's always the moment that we see that they put it together. They see the work that they've done on planning for space management and staffing strategies and equipment strategies, and they get to apply it in an alternate way. Almost like when I wrote a full building evacuation plan for someone, 
where we go through and we identify, okay, stairwell 3A and stairwell 3B will be for vertical moves going down. And then we show that stairwell 3C and D are going to be for emergency responders coming up. Well, the simplicity of that is when the actual event happens, stairwell 3A and 3B may be out of action. So they may be gone. They may not be feasible for them to use. So at that time, they do an alternate strategy and they reverse it and they say, let's use 3C and 3D and one is up and one is down. And so because the plans are already there, it enables them to work through that. And when you kind of think of the impact of the future, like we we think of where is this going to go post COVID-19? If there was one thing that we should see the industry do it is the, these are set structures. We're in these hospitals, these nursing homes every day. Our same team is in there every day. We know them inside and out to take the planning that we're doing and turn it into reality to know what are my true redundant failures on water? What are my true redundant failures on medical gases? And have a backup strategy that's tried, tested, and proven for each of these that will be the piece that should come out of this. And we're so scared that after this is over, we're going to watch the healthcare facilities. They're going to be exhausted. They're going to be tired. Everybody has been, there's going to be a lot of people that leave the industry because they're burned out. What we don't want to see happen is the stop. They take their foot off the gas pedal. We want to see them maybe pull it back, you know, slow down a little bit, but continue their planning efforts because they've learned a tremendous amount. And this learning, if they don't follow it through, will go for naught. And that that is not where we need to be. This is our time to advance. Um, my firm always talks about advancing the science of safety. You know, that's a big thing. I think this is where they advance, where their projections will be for the future and make sure the appropriate investments are done to support that planning. It's it's interesting you say that because we've been here, you know, we're in the recruiting and education space, and we've been trying to think through as well, Scott, what, what's going to result from this virus? Because we are going to come out on the back end, and everybody's going to be successful, and people are going to do a great job. But we came to that, too, with the population of baby boomers, with the uh, the great amount of, of director-level people being at a baby boomer. We think coming out of this, you will see an increase of people leaving in the industry because they're just going to be exhausted. And this, if you were thinking of retirement prior, this may be the catapult for you because you're going to have been going 24-7 for months and months at a time. So I agree with you on that. I think that's a real risk. Um, obviously, you're trying to get through this now, so you're not thinking about the back end. But that atrophy from existing director level, I, I think, could become a real issue coming out of this. Yeah, it really could. And and we, we know what's going to happen. But as long as the teams really do document what they're going through in this event and document it well, even though they're tired, make sure they're, they're putting down what worked, what didn't, they will end up being OK. And then bring those facility directors back as consultants to help you at the end, too, because you're right. going to need to have them come back to provide guidance to the, the team members that are growing up through. Um, but yeah, I, I really agree. This is this is a time. It's, it's a scary time, but it's also a time of opportunity for healthcare systems to really invest in their infrastructure and in their capabilities to handle threats like this. Excellent, Scott Aronson, Senior Vice President, Security Risk and Emergency Management at Jensen Hughes. Thank you for your time this morning. Stay safe, and we really appreciate uh, your insight and your knowledge. Thank you. 
Hey, Peter, thank you so much and be safe. Thank you, Scott. Have a good day.